0: in a way the title, because uh, we always have to give titles. so <laughs> I thought, why not this one? And so I'd like to talk a little about meditation, mindfulness, and meditative inquiry. And first looking at meditation is when we were sitting in meditation, you might have noticed we did actually three seemingly different things. Awareness of the breath, awareness of the sounds, and then questioning. And what I think is important to see is that you have many different techniques. I mean, within the Buddhist tradition, you have different traditions, and within each tradition, you have more technique, and then within each teacher has a slightly different idea, so you have many different techniques. And generally, everybody says, my technique is the best technique. I mean, it's the best technique for them, as long as it works. might not necessarily be the best technique for everybody all the time. And I think what is important to see is that before you have the specific technique, actually you have what I would call the essential ground of meditation. That actually when we meditate, we are actually cultivating certain things. And what we're cultivating is what generally is known as samatha and vipassana, which means concentration and experiential inquiry. So that's what we're, doing to, we're trying to do. And actually, these things are not something we're going to create. They are ability that we have. We, can all, we all have the ability to concentrate, to focus, And we all have the ability to look deeply, to inquire. And then in the meditation, we're trying to cultivate more these in in a certain way. And so you have the concentration. And also we have to be careful with these two terms, samatha and vipassana, concentration and inquiry, because often they are translated in two very different ways. Because either they can refer to the cultivation of something, so in terms of samatha is a cultivation of concentration, the cultivation of focusing, of anchoring, or the effect of that cultivation. And the effect of that cultivation is going to be calm, quietness, stability. The same with vipassana. Vipassana means to look deeply. So the cultivation is to look deeply, is to inquire experientially. And the effect is generally called insight. And that's what often it's referred to insight meditation. And so if you do insight meditation, you might have the impression that I must have insight every two minutes, but generally not. But it doesn't mean we cannot cultivate and at some point we might have some insights of different types so i think to see very much that that's a basis that's what we're doing because doing that cultivating concentration cultivating experiential inquiry is going to develop certain things and together then they're going to make us develop creative awareness creative mindfulness. So let's look at concentration. Again, we have to be careful with concentration because if you are in school or if you are at work and you might look a little like this and somebody will say, concentrate. And what do we do when we told concentrate? We generally tighten and narrow. But that's not what we're trying to do when we meditate. When we meditate, that's why nowadays I prefer the word anchoring. We're trying to anchor. So we anchor in the breath, anchor in the sound, anchor in the question. And the anchoring has different idea about it, different effect. One of the points of the anchoring is that it's an anchor. Look at an anchor with a boat. The fact that you have an anchor doesn't mean that the boat doesn't move. It just means the boat doesn't go too far and get lost in the ocean. It goes a little bit here, a little bit there. It's the same with the concentration here. We anchor in the breath and then we go a little away from the breath and we come back to it. We go a little this way, we come back to it. So having thought is not a problem. When we sit in meditation, having emotion, sensation, hearing sound is not a problem. It's just what happens. But the anchoring in the breath, for example, will help us doing two things in connection to thought, for example. is that we don't feed the thought, and at the same time we diminish their power in terms of habit, and they can (laughs) go back to their functioning. So we're not trying to eliminate thought. We're actually trying to bring them back to their creative function. The other thing that happens with the anchoring is notice. You're trying to be with the breath, then you go off. You think of this, you think of that, and then you come back to the breath, or to the sound, or to the question. And as soon as you come back, you come back to the whole moment. That is another thing about the concentration is that it enables us to be more fully in what is happening here now instead of being 40% here, 20% there, 30% there. So it really has this quality to bring us back to a wider experience of what is going on. Also, if we have less thoughts in terms of less agitation in the thinking It doesn't mean we don't have thought but they're less agitated because they're less moving so much proliferating magnifying amplifying then we are more spacious and then we are more stable so it's kind of it also has that quality of stability so the concentration the anchoring is to help us to in a way de-stick the habits, especially the mental habits, to bring us back here, to stabilize us, and in that way to quieten to some degree, to be more peaceful to some degree. Then you have, the. what is also important to see in terms of the concentration is that you can have inclusive concentration or exclusive concentration. Exclusive concentration is that when you sit in meditation, I must watch the breath, I must not have thought, I must not do this, I must not do that, you try to exclude everything. And if you do this, it generally makes you a bit tense. And so personally, I think it's more useful to cultivate inclusive concentration, where then you have something in the foreground, the breath, the sound, the question, and in the background you have a wide open awareness when things arise and pass away. So you don't exclude anything, and there is much less tension. And I think this is more useful for meditation in daily life, this inclusive meditation. And then you have the other aspect, which is vipassana, which is to look deeply, which is to inquire, to inquire experientially. And so one way to do it is, for example, as I suggested, what is this air that I breathe? But not thinking in terms of oxygen, CO2, O2, and things like that, but to think more in terms of what is this air? And then actually to realize we're all breathing the same air. But generally what do we think? Generally we think we just have our own air cocoon around us, and this is fairly clean and fairly pure. And it's my stuff, but I mean, the stuff of somebody else, I don't know about their stuff. you know. I don't know about their air, I mean, you know, don't know about their lungs. But actually, constantly, my air is going into your lungs, yours is going into mine, it gets a little stale too. And then also with the trees, with the birds, with everything that is alive, we're sharing the same air. And if through experiential inquiry, we can really experience that connection. That through the pore of our bodies, through our breath, we are actually connected with everything in the world. So that's one of the things about the experiential inquiry. Often we have this feeling of being separate, of being isolated. And so it helps us to break that impression of isolation and it helps us to be more in connection. Another thing with the experiential inquiry, like with the sounds or the sensation, is to notice how they arise and they pass away. And so, in a way, one of the key, I would say, to experiential inquiry in daily life is that if whatever happens, happens, you ask, how long is this going to last? Instead of thinking, this is terrible, this is going to happen all the time, forever, it's always been like this, it will always be like that. A few days ago, I cut my finger badly. And on the moment, it was fairly painful. And at the same time, the pain stopped fairly quickly. I mean, it was kind of quite a a gash. It was painful. And then I put something on it to stop the blood, and then we were trying to do something because I was going to go and teach an hour later, so I had to (laughs) kind of do something. And to me, what was interesting was to observe how it was. So when it happened, it was painful for about not even a minute. Then it was fine for the rest of the day, strapped and everything. And then I went to the doctor, and then he started to do things to it, and then it was painful again. And then he was going to do stitches, and then I was so happy. I know I'm a meditation teacher, and I'm a Zen person, and I should be above everything, but when considering stitches straight, I thought, I'm not sure I can do this. So very fortunately, he anesthetized it, and again, it was totally fine. And then the anesthetic wore off. And it was painful again. So through the day I could observe how it changed. It was not exactly the same. And so this is, but we have such a tendency to permanentize. We have this funny way and then that's really rigid, rigidify us. We become rigid. We become stark. And so in a way, this experiential inquiry, in order to be in tune with the fact that things change, they change within themselves or they arise and pass away. And so this is really this um, key, this experiential inquiry, so that we're more in tune with that quality of our experience. And then, then it's easier to be with the potential of what can arise is there to be with the stuckness of it's never going to change. That I think is a very important part of the experiential inquiry. And so the experiential inquiry generally will bring us more clarity and will bring us more openness. And so the quietness and the clarity together will help us to develop creative awareness. So I think it's very important to see That the mindfulness we are trying to cultivate and to develop is not staring at reality. It's not like we become this camera and we register everything. And if we cultivate mindfulness, that's what we have to do. But actually, it's called appropriate mindfulness. It's one of the eightfold paths. And so it's a certain type of mindfulness that we develop in. One of the first things about mindfulness, sati, S-A-T-I in the old language, is that it's remembrance. It's about memory. It's about actually remembering to do something. In meditation, remembering to go back to the anchor. In daily life, remembering our intention, remembering our value of wisdom, of compassion. Another aspect of uh, mindfulness, it's ethical discernment. That's very important to see that Buddhist mindfulness has an ethical aspect. I remember when I was uh, young, before I uh, got into meditation, but I was kind of interested in spiritual things. So I was 18 years old, in the 70s, and I was in London doing Temp's job as a French young person, and I really liked spiritual books, but I had very little money, and so I used to steal spiritual books. (laughs) So there was this bookshop called Watkins, and I used to go there, and because they were so spiritual, it was very easy to steal their spiritual books. (laughs) And then I would take them and I would read them. And then one day I thought, wait a minute, and I think I become finally mindful. I thought, this is not on. It's not on to steal these books. It's kind of like you know the message is mismatched. It does not fit. So I decided from now on I'm not going to steal books. And then my solution at the time was actually to not go to the bookshop. Because I thought if I go to the bookshop I won't be able (laughs) to help myself. And then I worked on myself, and then I was able to go to the bookshop and buy the books instead of taking them. But to me, this was, in a way, like the beginning of my path, of my meditative path, to have that creative, ethical mindfulness to realize, hey, you are doing this. This is not on. This is not appropriate. This is not fitting to your intention. And so this ethical discernment. Also the mindfulness, it's interesting, it has this kind of grounding quality. It's really kind of trying to root us in what is going on and not kind of getting lost in lots of froth, in abstraction. We're often lost in stories and abstraction. And in a way the mindfulness is grounding and is what is really going on here? What are the conditions? What are the contributing factors? What is happening? So in a way, the mindfulness helping us not to be wobbly, but to stabilize. It doesn't mean that we don't move, but it means that we ground grounded. So if things happen which are disturbing, then we can go back easily to the baseline. And that's what I found when I cut myself like that. I could see, you know, you can easily go into And I thought, no, I mean, this happened. Accident in the home. Just come back. And then I just come back to the ground of the mindfulness. What is going on right now? And I come back to stability. And then I can creatively engage with what happens. So the mindfulness also is balanced. I think it's very important that the mindfulness we develop has this balancing quality. It's kind of we go a little here, we go a little there, but we come back in the middle. It has a it's kind of a way to bring us back to balance. And so this is a little what we're trying to cultivate when we cultivate appropriate mindfulness. And then in terms of inquiry, I think also in terms of uh, mindfulness and inquiry, going together to remember that often mindfulness nowadays, there is this definition, some of you might have heard it, mindfulness is non-judgmental awareness. And recently I had a friend who had lots of difficulty and was quite ill, and I said, but you could do this, you could do that, I said, no, 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 no. I must not do anything. And I said, why? She said, because I must be with things as they are. Ah. I thought, ah. Oh? But I said, you could do something. No, 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 I must be with things as they are. It's a Buddhist teaching. And I thought, ah. So I kind of I thought it was like a new age thing, you know, this be with think as they are. Ah. And then I asked Stephen, who knows more about this thing, he said, no, 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 it's found in the text. And so I found this phrase, yata, bhutam, nyanya, dasana. That's where these be with things as they are come from. But actually, it doesn't mean be with things as they are. It actually means see, know, and see things as they come to be. So it's not about non-action. It's about not about accepting things no matter what. But it's about seeing and knowing things as they come to be. And so I would say inquiry is very much about conditions. It's about seeing that when things happen, when we feel a certain way, it's not because it's always like this. But it's because you have a trigger, Which generally give rise to something. You have conditions which help something happen. And you have what I call contributing factors. And then the mindfulness can help us to see I am not always reacting in this painful way. And so you could be in the same situation and you don't react. And you're really creative with the situation. And then you have the same situation, and suddenly you're all over the place with it. And then to look, why? Generally because you've not slept well, generally because you've been ill, generally because we've been stressed. I must say, I had a terrible experience in Melbourne Airport. <laughs> and this was last Wednesday. And Stephen said, but what's the matter? I was you know we were trying to find the domestic check-in of Qantas and it was like kind of you know like being in the jungle you know you go here you go there you don't and you know and we had little time and I was like ah. and Stephen was what's happening to you and what was happening to me is that I had not slept for 7 hours I was coming from Singapore I we had very little time and we did not know what was going on with this domestic check in quartet. <laughs> and so I was really like kind of breathing funny, talking funny, and it lasted about five minutes until finally we found you know, the direction, hopefully, and then we found it. And then straight away it went back to the baseline. I mean, I could have continued, but I did not see the point. The solution was there. So this is the thing about mindfulness and inquiry, is to see, I am feeling that way because generally there is this, that, and another. And then the question is, how can I creatively engage with the situation? And so this is, in a way, the connection with the three, mindfulness, meditation, and inquiry, that the meditation helps us to develop creative awareness actually using mindfulness. So the mindfulness is agent and the result. That's what is a little strange. And the inquiry helps us to be more creative. This is what I see the inquiry. That's why I think we have to be careful not to associate meditation just with concentration, just with being calm. We also need to cultivate this quality we all have within ourselves, to inquire, to use the brightness of our mind, then with the brightness of our mind and the mindfulness we can see, oh, I am feeling this way because this, that and another. How can I creatively engage with this situation? So that's what I wanted to say this evening, are there any questions or comments? Yeah. I have a question which is, uh, about, I was just say a little bit in relation to what you just said because it relates to the question. The question is, um, <clears throat> some people might attribute uh, mindfulness to a kind of attention, you know, to a focus or a, an attention. But uh, I would like to explore the idea with you that, uh, which you reflected on a bit towards the end of your, of your talk there that mindfulness is perhaps more about uh, understanding the elements or, or components of, uh, of the path, in a sense, so to speak, because one of the things you just spoke about then, for example, in your creative uh, awareness or mindfulness was understanding causes and conditions, for example. You see, this is a thing, is that, actually, we talk of mindfulness, but, Actually, there is different aspect. And if you look at the text, you have a term which represents paying attention, which is connected to mindfulness. You also have a term which is connected to a more probing quality. And so there is one interesting image the Buddha had of mindfulness. He said it is like a plowman plowing a field. And if you look at a ploughman ploughing a field, there is one element of direction that he must go in the right direction, otherwise it's going to be all crooked. The second one is that he must be balanced because if he pushes too much, he gets stuck. If it's too light, then nothing happens. And the third quality with the ploughman is that it it reveals by digging. As he dug up the furrow, then things can be revealed. And so, in a way. I think often this probing quality is a little forgotten of uh, the mindfulness, but in the text you definitely find this probing quality. That actually as you, you are mindful, you are looking deeply, then you see and know things as they come to be, of course. And to me this is in a way what the path is about because often we associate meditation with actually being above condition. And often I think people hope that one day they'll be so equanimous that actually nothing will matter. It's like we are in a little cloud, you know, <laughs> and oh you have trouble there, never mind, you know, one day you might come like me, you know, my little <laughs> cloud, I'm okay here. But I think it's not that. Actually The Buddha again and again talked about conditions and how we are influenced by conditions. And so I would say the process of meditation, of mindfulness, of inquiry is an exploration of the condition that forms us. And of course, within that, the cause and effect. What condition give rise to what? What is the effect of that, of course? And then it's kind of like a, a lifelong exploration of the inner condition meeting the outer condition. Yes? Uh, I'm really interested by the expression creative awareness. Mm-hmm. creatively engage. Yeah, I think possibly I am the only one who uses this term. And so to see if it could be kind of, you know, accepted. There is this very great monk, great monk, who is uh, know really about the sutta. And he's a, kind of a, f- a friend. I ask him, you know, things about the sutta often. And so once I tried to ask him, what do you think, you know, if we called mindfulness, sati, creative awareness, don't you think it would be a good term? And he said, it is not in the text. (laughs) But this doesn't stop me from using it. Because this is my experience. When I did meditation and when I was a nun in Korea, I did a lot of meditation. And what I found was that what I was developing, because actually I was doing the questioning, And nobody talked about awareness, but actually doing the questioning meditation made me become aware, but made me become aware in a creative way. So I feel that the meditation, the mindfulness inquiry, helps us to dissolve the obstacle to our creative potential. So when the obstacles are dissolved, you don't have this empty hole. But on the contrary, I feel there is this creative space. And so that something new can arise. And with creativity, I would also talk about fluidity. That in a way, often we are a little rigid, and generally we see things in black and white. When here, I think it kind of gives us multi-choice. We have a much wider arena. We are not stuck being this or that, or it's always like this, like that. And so you have this space, and then creativity can come in. And so personally, I really deeply feel that what we develop is a creative awareness. An awareness which gives us more choices, and actually is creative. You suddenly, often you surprise yourself. Often I surprise myself, oh, but the creative awareness happens in this moment. The creative potential is in this experience, because if we go in abstraction, in thought, then you reduce the scope to just a thought, or just a feeling, or just a sensation, or just a situation. But with this creative awareness, you are in this whole experience, and so you have different bits in it. It's multi-perspectival, and then you can see which bit is going to help you, which bit is stuck. And then there can be what I call this creative engagement, this creative response to this situation now, instead of a situation in the past or a, the situation way in the future, which I don't know what happened. But right now, what is going on? How can I be with this situation now? I think it's a bit Thank you. Yeah? Of course, of course. It can happen in the chemistry level. They can look at the same things every day that they have and not see how we, that they shouldn't believe. But the awareness comes, the creativity of association putting things together and understand. Just so, of course, I, that's what I would say, in a way personally I would say the, the meditation The quietness and the clarity, the concentration and inquiry are what develop creative awareness. And at the same time, you need to be mindful in order to become creative. But what was interesting in my experience is that I did not do mindfulness practice, and I still developed awareness, which became creative. So I would totally agree, the awareness is vital, and at the same time, I feel very quickly you get also the creativity within it. If the inquiry is there, if there is just a concentration, I have the feeling there is less creativity. But if you have equally the concentration and the inquiry, then I feel you have that movement of creativity. This is really your opportunity to ask any question or make any comment yeah um i just had a question about the um emphasis that you're putting on the probing part of the practice in my experience i find my head starts talking to me whenever i do any inquiry practice and i came out of a tradition of doing more of that and then got into doing pure shamatha because i just my i have a real tendency to be discursive i think this is quite common in the west and I just wanted to um, ask you about what level of practice capability or concentration capability you need to have in order to do the inquiry practice and have it be experiential as opposed to just thought-based. You see, this is a key, this is a key to see that, the, that it be the questioning, that it be the vipassana in the inside tradition. That's why I, to- I talk about experiential inquiry. I mean, of course, you have method. For example, in the Tibetan tradition, which is more analytical meditation, but that's not what I'm talking about here. But it's kind of, that's why I think it's so important to, that's why now I use the term experiential inquiry. Because if you look, if you use those terms, it can be a little more abstract. You have the feeling it's intellectual, it's analysis. And certain technique of meditation seems to indicate it's more analysis. When actually what I think it is, it's very simple. It's like you take, you take, uh, let's say you have a, a pain in the knee. So the concentration is the fact that you pay attention to it. So you pay attention to it. And the inquiry is like if you go and you put a beam of light inside, the experience itself there. Instead of being here, my pain, my knee is going to drop off, I'll never walk again, this is a bad idea, etc. So the inquiry is really going inside the experience, but with no preconception about it. Because I find often different technique sets you up to find certain things. And that's why for me the questioning, because I started with the questioning, which was the unconditional questioning, no reference point, no answer. So then going that way, you don't presuppose anything. And then when I found the Vipassana, I was going it that way. And personally, that's why I would not put so much emphasis on being aware of our thoughts. Because if you, again, go more into being aware of your thoughts, then it gets really entangled. And so what I would suggest, if you want to be aware of your thought, is actually to be aware of the breath. Anchor in the breath, anchor in the body, anchor in the listening, and then just gently notice, planning, daydreaming, but then not even stay there, but look more at the quality. For example, daydreaming. You sit in meditation, the breath, the sound, and then you start to think, if I was the greatest writer on earth, if I won the lottery. And then you have this beautiful daydream. But if you look over time, you can feel, how does it feel at the beginning? And actually it's, "Mm." it's gooey, it's gooey, it's like chocolate cake and actually that's what gets us because I used to do this a lot in Korea sitting 10 hours a day in meditation I used to think I'm going to hermitage, I'm going to practice hard I'm going to be awakened I'm going to save everybody I used to daydream about meditation (laughs) that was not meditation so I first had to realize that and then I had to know but why do I do this I mean, there is lots of psychological stuff, but in experience, why did I do this? And over time, I could see it was that, "Mm." and it just started with, if I was, if I had. But that if I was, if I had had a certain seductive quality, and actually knowing that, feeling it, experiencing it. So I think often the problem is when it presented in a more possibly intellectual manner when personally I would say more experiential. So if it's more experiential, I don't think you need to have lots of practice to do vipassana as long as you keep it simple and you keep it really in the experience. How does it feel in the knee? How does it feel, this first thought, or even with the emotional sensation? How does it feel here? Is it heavy? Is it light? And so not going into the meaning of it, but in the experience of it. And I think if we do that, then generally there is less abstraction. But of course, if one finds that there is too much abstraction, then of course you can always go back to the concentration practice. And within the concentration practice, if you can just be aware a little of the change, that things change, then that's really also vipassana. Thank you. Just yeah? you to simply saying, come back to the experience in the body. Yeah, well, because it's not floating there. <laughs> it's not floating. There. Your thoughts about the body. Meditation. Is there more to it or what you've described, is it good? To me, I personally, I feel, I feel the in a way we are so used. Sometimes I feel it's like our brain is here and then the body is dragged behind. And I feel actually the meditation, the mindfulness, the inquiry is helping the everything to come back in this body, in this environment. I think it's very careful not to just see the body as just this. But I think it's a body in this environment. So it's kind of, you could nearly say a larger body experience. Because you're not an island, you are within an environment. You breathe, you eat, you hear, etc. But I think yes, to me the the body, uh, the meditation awareness of the body I think is essential. And what is interesting in terms of the questioning in Korea is that they tell you to bring the question into the belly. And then again, there is this kind of, then there is like, over time, the development of a physical, nearly sensation of questioning. So I would say, generally, even the thought, personally, I think they have a taste, I think, you know. So to me, the same with the emotion, the emotion are not floating here. <laughs> The emotion you feel somewhere. How does it feel? When I was in Melbourne with my, (laughs) I mean, it was physical. It was physical and just being aware of that. And then when the situation stopped, it was gone. But yeah, personally, I think the body, the the experiential inquiry is in the body. But of course, it can also be in the thought, but I mean the thought are produced by the body too. But but for example, if, um, if you have a recurring thought, it's interesting to look, but not in a complicated manner. What is it I'm thinking about? Secondly, in what way am I thinking about it? What is a language? What is a tone? What is the trigger word? Because sometimes we have trigger words. And so what is a feel of that sort? So, 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 so the experiential inquiry is not, why am I thinking this? But more, what am I thinking? Or what am I feeling in the experience of it? Not yesterday, in the future, but right now. What is going on? And also, how is it changing? Because that's also part of it. It is a, a moving feast in a way. It's kind of moving, changing. Martin. Yeah. Um, I'm just studying psychology at the moment, and I keep on seeing a lot of ideas that seem very much Buddhist, um, but I'm not getting. From my lecturers, or those connections aren't being drawn. So I'm just wondering why you think there's this divide in, in Western psychology and, and uh, Buddhist traditions, and how, how we could sort of break down those barriers. I mean, lots of people are doing this type of work, I mean, you know, with the mindfulness movement and with the different, you know, dialectical, cognitive therapy connected to mindfulness for depression, for example. But again, I think there, in psychology, it's like the Buddhist traditions. You don't have psychology. You have different psychological movements. You have different psychological theory, from Freud to Jung to, I mean, you name it, you have it transpersonal, existential, and you know and all the little I mean, you know, it's just like Buddhism. With, so what is interesting is that you have different strands of psychological movement which meet different strands of Buddhist movement, because there are some Buddhist movements who really are not into psychology and some will meet it more and some psychology were are really not meeting. So I think it's more a question of how you, if you're interested in mindfulness, meditation, can in a way, you will be the link between the two. And I think each of us, if we are, I'm very interested in psychology, if even if I have not trained in it and I read lots of books. But in a way it's me who makes the connection, it's you who make the connection. And then I think in terms of if one becomes a psychiatric, psychiatrist or a psychologist or a therapist, it's how you embody the mindfulness in the way you are with the client and also the listening. I personally, this is something I learned when I did the six-month six course of counseling. It really taught me how to listen, how to be with someone without presupposition. And then the mindfulness I developed helped me to be stable. So I think there are lots of good quality in the psychological movements and also in the Buddhistic movement which can meet. And some I think were quite far away. You know I mean? Then it depends. And only each of us can make the link when we study it or especially when we work with it, I would say. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.